now, by your Holy Spirit's help, that we may understand this ancient and distant portion of your word, which is, ironically, extremely relevant to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. As we work our way down through the, the handout, I'll start off at the, the very top where it says the main point, God judged and uh, restored prideful Esau or Edom for his violence toward his twin brother Jacob or Israel, which led to a feud between their two families, which led to a war between two nations. So Israel had a neighboring nation of Edom. And so if you look at the back of your paper, you'll find on the lower right corner, Edom. You should find it there close to the N for north, south, east, and west, lower right corner. And what you'll find also as you're looking at the map there is a dotted line that starts at the bottom of the page and goes up a little bit to the right and continues up as it curves back, and it's labeled King's Highway. I hope you find that. There is a significance to the King's Highway as it travels through the territory of Edom. And what you'll notice about Edom, if you look at the large gray circles, the dot, dots around the border of Edom, it's about 10 mile, 30 miles wide and about 100 miles long. So it's a kind of a, a rectangle um, standing up there. So just orient yourself. If you look further up, you see the body of water, Dead Sea, and just to the left of that, Jerusalem. So you can orient yourself where... Uh, Edom is, it's a neighbor to Israel, it's a neighbor to Judea on the south, and if you notice, the terrain is a lot of mountains. See all the little marks for geography, the mountains there, that's significant. On the very bottom part of your page, you see a dot with MT period sire or seer, uh, Mount Seir is significant, and then straight up from that, if you can find Petra, it's Kadesh Barnea, also known as Petra, Sila, that city we'll talk about today. Just to the left of that, Mount Hor. So sometimes this is called Hor, or the Horites. Sometimes it's called Seir. Uh, Sometimes it's called Edom or um, the Edomites. So you know where we are on the map. It's significant as we move forward. Um, I think the most significant thing to note is that Israel's related to Edom, and I'll cover more about that in a moment. So I would like to pass around three other pictures. The first one is a picture of modern day. So if you look closely, you'll see uh, hikers, people in these last couple decades, whenever this picture was taken, hiking through a rock pathway. And this is the best picture I could find. I just want you to understand the road that's leading up to the city of Petra within Edom. So I wrote, This is a one-mile rock hallway. I'm calling it a rock hallway because it has giant rock cliffs on either side as you're walking along to Petra Edom, and that's what made Edom safe from enemy attacks. So that's number one. I'll pass around all three. The second one is a map of Edom that's a little more topographical. If you look at it sort of from the side, it gives you a better sense of the elevation of some of these areas, and I've highlighted the King's Highway, highlighted Edom, and put a little sticky where Petra is. So that's, this leads up to the city of Petra. And then the third one, if you're completely lost, this is a bigger picture of the Middle East to orient you where Edom is, where the King's Highway is, and where Petra is. So I'm passing those three around to uh, continue to enjoy throughout the class. And we move forward now with the one map you do have on the back of your handout. You notice that Edom is located east of the Jordan River and south of the Dead Sea. Um, the land of Sire, or uh, from a mountain called Mount Sire, at the bottom of your map. Um, the land of Edom extended from the border of Moab southward to the Gulf of Akeba. And on the east side of Edom was the desert. It just went desert, completely east of there. So the northern part of Edom had some farmland, but that farming was not the most important geographical aspect of Edom. The most important aspect of their location was that they're right along the King's Highway. That shipping route for products and goods becomes significant. Um, The King's Highway was like today's modern major trucking routes, but perhaps we should back up the clock before airplanes. How significant, and maybe before railroads, the significance of the highways in the United States to get products from one place to another 
and how towns rose up along those highways because the same dynamics are there in the ancient world. You can, you can understand this, right? In the ancient world, whenever mighty Egypt, down to the south, if you're looking at your map on the far south left, when they would send goods to Syria on the top right, how would Egypt get their goods to Syria? There's no helicopters, <laughs> there's no airplanes, and there's no water to ship it on ships. It would be on caravans along the king's highway. And similarly, the reverse, when Syria wanted to send products down to Egypt, all that went along the king's highway. So what does that mean for Edom? The country of Edom benefited financially. Trade shipments brought Edom money from tolls. They could charge whatever they want to pass through your territory. It also brought them money from ancient caravans needing to buy food, needing water, refreshments, lodging, supplies, whatever Edom had to sell. Um, the thing that made Edom's location very important, though, is its natural military strength and security due to the high cliffs the elevated rock location provided, which is why I'm sending around that one picture of the rock hall hallway leading up to the major city of, of Petra. The central part of Edom was characterized by those red sandstone cliffs that you see in that picture, and they went up as high as 5,000 feet. So in the ancient world, they were unpassable. And we have a lot of new, different equipment today. But all this above sea level. So Edom was naturally and easily fortified against enemy attack. The result was Edom could attack other nations, come back home and say, Nan and Abubu, you can't get me, right? They would rather, rarely be attacked themselves, but they could attack others. The second thing it means is that Edom could exact payments from others when they passed through their land, but rarely did Edom have to pay others for anything. So all this sets up for you the book of Obadiah. It's necessary background. I, I wouldn't bore you with geographical information unless it was key to understanding the book of Obadiah, which is our goal today. So next is our summary of the book of Obadiah on the front page of your handout, front um, side. Our fourth, now our fourth minor prophet, and we're calling this a God theater, where God puts on these little plays, these 12 plays from the many uh, minor prophets, to each present a story, and within the story we learn about God. So what is Obadiah presenting? It's a play, if you will, about God warning a foreign nation, Edom, and the language is full of doom. There's destruction coming to Edom. Still, Obadiah's message fits what we've always seen in our God theater, what we always know about the minor prophets. There's a pattern of judgment unto restoration. So the doom for the foreign nations, the foreign nation of Edom this time, is at the same time implicitly a message of hope for God's people. If your enemy's going down... It's good news for you, right? So the oracle looks forward to a time when the predicted demise of Edom will open the way for the restored, purified Israel to blossom once again. Those who oppose the Lord in their pride will meet their end, while the righteous, who have been oppressed, will be both preserved and exalted. So in this case, the Edomites, who had seized lands of Judah in the wake of Babylon's attacks on Jerusalem, are scolded and will die out, allowing the Israelites to repossess the promised land under the Lord's blessing. We move on now to the man Obadiah. The man Obadiah. A couple things to say under this category. First, he wrote this, this book, which is the shortest book in the Old Testament. Not just the shortest minor prophet. The shortest book in the Old Testament. However, the message is just as important as the longest and second longest book, Psalms and Jeremiah. The name of Obadiah is interesting. You know, maybe you have been told this before. The name Adam is just the word man in Hebrew. Man, Adam. It's like asking a child, what should we name cat? Kitty, right? You just call it what it is and that becomes its name. That's kind of how Obadiah is. It just means servant. So it almost seems like he's anonymous. He's invisible. All we're saying is blank servant of the Lord, an unnamed servant of the Lord, by using the word Obadiah, we think of it as a name, but I just want you to understand it's actually just the generic word servant, servant of the Lord. So it, in addition to that, Obadiah is a common name. <laughs> Shocker for you. 
there's 11 other men in the Old Testament named Obadiah. I should have quizzed you because you never would have got that one. We have no information about the man who wrote this book. Does that sound familiar? We've had that before with our men of prophets. We don't have his background. We don't even have his previous occupation. Remember, I'll give you a quiz now. What was Amos before he was called to be a prophet? A shepherd. So we don't even have that about Obadiah. We don't know what Obadiah did before God called him to be a prophet. We have nothing about his family, nothing about his location. Because of the lack of information about him, it's consequently difficult to know when this book was written. The strongest clue we have comes from verse 11. If you're open to Obadiah, please look at verse 11. We'll study that in a moment. But that mentions the fall of Jerusalem, and we know that the first time, the major time, what we ordinarily think of as the fall of Jerusalem is 586 when Babylon attacked. So we think that that's when this book takes place, is 586 B.C. Obviously, it was, if it was significantly important, God would have showed it to us, so that's a pretty good guess but it's not ultimately important. Remember, in fact, that there were other attacks on Jerusalem, so it could have been a different date. It doesn't change the meaning. So, and then also, verse 1, 1. Uh, chapter, there's only one chapter. I like to say 1, 1, because otherwise it confuses people. They like to go to a different chapter. Anyway, there's only one chapter, so you can say chapter 1, verse 1, or you could just say verse 1. Notice how it says these four words, the vision of Obadiah. It's significant, so I'm pausing here for a minute. This conveys something important. Specifically, it is the idea that the man received supernatural revelation from God. The vision. Vision from whom? Vision from God to his prophet Obadiah, his servant. So it's matching an ordination as a prophet. If you say the man preached his first sermon you would think that, oh, just prior to that, he had been ordained to become a minister or pastor, and he preached his first sermon. Obadiah has a vision. It's expecting that you understand that that all includes that he had received a call from God to be a prophet, and he received this vision. It's the expectation that he would then announce that vision to God's people. Uh, these four simple words, the vision of Obadiah at the start of the book, tell us he's not a volunteer, he didn't just take it upon himself to stand up and speak. He got tired of selling stuff. He didn't want to be a merchant anymore, so he thought he would start spouting off, pontificating on other people. None of that at all. He actually got a call from God, the vision of Obadiah. Furthermore, God did not give Obadiah a general concept. It's not like an impression in a vision, and then he gets to just fill out the picture with whatever language or illustrations he wants. No, God gave Obadiah the entire vision. It's words and ideas from God. And that vision is what is being relayed in these 21 verses. So God is giving a specific message about a specific nation to a specific prophet at a specific time in order that that prophet will pick up that message and deliver it faithfully to that people. So that's the man Obadiah. We move on to our next section on your handout, which is the prehistory of the book of Obadiah. It started as a feud between twin brothers. Now, the prehistory of the land, going all the way back to Genesis 14, 5, and 6, we're told that the, the first ones who were living in the land were called the Horites, H-O-R-I-T-E-S, Horites, from the land of Hor, and later it's called Seir, so the people of Seir, and then we get to ancient Abraham. So I, I put on your handout a tiny family tree, starting with Abraham and Sarah, and then Isaac and Rebekah, and then Jacob and Esau. And um, if you don't recall, just give a quick review now. Jacob and Esau are twins, and they had a tense relationship since, you could say, before they were born. If you remember, and I'll read it in a moment, how Jacob grabs hold of the ankle of his brother coming out the birth canal. So it's pretty original, pretty ancient, pretty uh, deep in their relationship. Um, just remember that Jacob, as I listed on your handout, just be underneath his name, in parentheses, Israel. God changed his name from Jacob to Israel. And then under Esau, parentheses, Edom. So every time you hear the word Esau, as we'll read in our book of Obadiah today, think Edom. Hear Esau, think Edom. Hear Edom, think Esau. It's the same. It starts out with a person, Esau, but becomes 
a whole nation of people. Okay, so the significance, although why am I telling you all this? Again, it's very significant. There's a sin that Edom committed against someone else. And it would be a sin in any case. But it's more heinous a sin because it's his relative, because it's his brother. So as I wrote on their significance, the Edomites were related to the Israelites, so they should have helped them instead of harming them. So I'll read these two passages to back up what I just said. Genesis 25, 19 to 26. Listen for how the relationship is between the twins, Esau and Jacob. Genesis 25, 19. These are the generation of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Hadan Aram, the sister of Laban the Aramean, to be his wife. Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. You hear the struggle already? They're fighting in utero. We're supposed to gain something from this and understand the relationship between these two. Um, so you went to inquire of the Lord. Verse 23, And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Remember that. The older shall serve the younger. Verse 24, When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Red. It's very simple, straightforward. Esau means red in Hebrew, so we call him red. I mean, don't you have a red-headed friend you call red, perhaps, right? So that's it. Verse 26, afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. So that's Genesis 25, 19 to 26. They're twins, but we're told which one is literally older. The whole birth story is explained to us. Then, fast forward to Genesis 32, verse 28, where God said to Jacob, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God, struggled with God, and with men, and have prevailed. He's a feisty one, that Jacob. right? So God renamed Jacob, so he was called Israel. Jacob and Esau were twin brothers with tension, and the resulting nations coming from them, Israel and Edom, had tension. So again, all this is backdrop to our study of Obadiah. Fast forward to the time when the people of Israel were coming home from slavery in Egypt. Okay, if you can quickly fast forward in your mind to a whole different time frame now. The people of God are being released. And who's bringing them up out of Egypt? The prophet Moses, right? So their uh, exodus from Egypt has just happened. The people of God are traveling and returning home. They're in the Sinai. They want to pass through Edom to the promised land of Israel. Do you think the Edomites would let their extended relatives pass through their land safely? The answer is no. I'll read it to you. Numbers 20, verses 14 and following, and I'll just summarize it so you know what you're listening for. Moses promised to them that Moses and the people would harm nothing, and they would even pay for the water. If you think it's recent that we started paying for water in bottles, they were willing to pay for water in the day of Moses. So they're willing to pay for the water, for the cattle to drink, and all we want to do is pass through. We're not going to steal anything. We're not going to do anything. We're not going to take your daughters for our sons. We just want to pass through. That's it. Charge us a toll, right? So listen for this. Numbers 20, verse 14. Moses sent messengers from Kadesh to the king of Edom. Thus says your brother Israel. See how it's emphasized? Your brother, the relationship is supposed to be highlighted to us. You know all the hardship that we have met. How our fathers went down to Egypt. We lived in Egypt a long time. Yeah, understatement, a long time, right? The Egyptians dealt harshly with us and our fathers, and when we cried to the Lord, he heard our voice and sent an angel and brought us out of Egypt. And here we are at Kadesh, a city in the edge of your territory. Please let us pass through your land. We will not pass through field or vineyard. In other words, nibbling on the grain, nibbling on the grapes. Right? We, or drink water from a well. We'll only drink what you provide for us and we'll pay for it, right? We will go along the king's highway. We're going to stay on the path, right? We will not turn aside to the right hand or to the left until we pass through your territory. That's a lot of promises, conditions, and prenuptials, right? Please, we'll do whatever you ask. There can't be any harm to you in this, right? But Edom said to him, you're my brother. Of course I'll let you. No, that's not what Edom said. Edom said to him, you shall not pass through lest I come out with a sword against you. And the people of Israel said to him, negotiation continues, 
We'll go up by the highway, and if we drink your water, I and my livestock, then I will pay for it. Only let me pass through on foot, nothing more. But he said, you shall not pass through. And Edom came out against them with a large army and with a strong force. Thus Edom refused to give Israel passage through his territory, so Israel turned away from him. There you go. Numbers 20, 14 to 20 and 21. And that passage is written on your handout. So remember how I said, remember the uh, older shall serve the younger? Or, um, so here, Edom, the country, must have been thought of as the older. right? They're stronger. They're literally higher up. They have the better geographical territory. Their safety. They're more developed, stronger, maybe wealthier too because they got so much money from the king's highway. But later... Now fast forward again in your mind later to the time of King David. If you want a little snippet of how impressive King David was as a military general, this is it. He somehow conquered the Edomite territory. A great battle proving what genius he was militarily, and we get that in 2 Samuel 8.13. David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. Then David put garrisons in Edom, which is you know, little outposts that he controlled. Throughout all Edom he put garrisons, and all the Edomites became David's servants, and the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. 2 Samuel 8, 13 to 14. So after that battle, the older nation was supplanted by the younger nation, just like the age-old battle between Jacob and Esau back in the book of Genesis that we read. From this point on, then, there's a bitter rivalry between the Edomites and the nation of Israel. That's the background to the prophecy of Edom. Eventually, Edom falls to nothing. But why? That's what the book of Obadiah tells us. So we're down to the outline on the bottom of your page. Uh, Verse 1, we'll see God sends a messenger to all the nations. Verses 2 to 9, God's warning to Edom. Downfall due to their pride. Verses 10 to 14, Edom's pride led to cruel wrongdoings against God's people, as we just uh, summarized in verses 15 to 18. The day of the Lord has two outcomes, uh, one for Edom, another for God's people. And verses 19 to 21 end with the land being regained by the Lord's people. So let's work our way through this. Verse 1, God sent a uh, messenger to all the nations you see there. Uh, Verse 2, God said to Edom, I will make you small among the nations, you shall be utterly despised. So God's judgment is announced to all the nations, but specifically to Edom. Doesn't it seem to you that God is making an example of Edom, but all the nations struggle with this same problem of pride? Yes, that's the whole point, and you'll see that when you jump to verse 15. He's back to all the nations. So we're only addressing Edom from verses 2 through 14. And then we're addressing all the nations again and starting at verse 15. So it's one test case, one especially prideful nation that God will then use to describe why God would judge all the nations for the same pride. So uh, Obadiah, verse 1, the Lord God concerning Edom, let's rise up against her for battle. Why? Verse 3, the pride of your heart has deceived you. Now, let me pause and just orient you. You're thinking pride. Huh, really? Pride? I mean, it's somebody that we might not prefer in elementary school playground, pride, prideful person in the workplace, a neighbor. You know, we get it. But really, we don't think of it all as all that bad. Um, even if we can see the evils of pride, we, we don't often think of it as something for which God would be justified to destroy an entire nation and then turn and direct that same judgment against the whole world? Why would nations be under the special scope of God's judgment just for pride? Isn't that your sort of normal reaction? Uh, People would be surprised to find a whole book of the Bible, this book of Obadiah, is set apart in order to address the sin of pride. But most people today, wouldn't you admit, have light views of sin in general and do not look at the world the way God looks at the world? They don't categorize things as right and wrong the way God categorizes things as right and wrong. And maybe we fall into that as well. Since we're sinners and we live in a broken, fallen world, we don't understand the priorities of God fully, do we? We don't understand the workings of God. So what does God say about pride? Maybe we'll be updated a little bit in our study on this today. Pride, 
I remind you, was the sin of an angel of God, an angel who then became the devil. Isaiah 14, 14, the devil said, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself, listen, the devil says, I will make myself like the most high. Isaiah 14, 14. Doesn't that sound exactly like what the devil later told Eve? Genesis 3, 5, the devil says to Eve, when you eat of this, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. Isn't that a temptation for her to be prideful? It's difficult to awaken modern Christians to the real danger of pride. So I'm taking a moment to do this so that you take this in as relevant to you and us. One pastor said he could talk to his church about the danger of alcohol all day long. Every Christian seems to know at least one person, several families, who've been ravaged and altered permanently by the danger of alcohol. The pastor said he could talk about the danger and damage of adultery, of greed, of slander, of anger. People are ready to listen with quick agreement. But when the pastor tries to expound a passage from the Bible about pride and the subtle deception and dangers that pride contains, there's a very different response with a a very different level of attention from Christians. And the reason is that modern Christians fail to understand the true nature of pride and its destructive force. Let me try this on you. Two different statements. Number one, he's a good man, but he's proud. Aren't you thinking that he might still be okay? Second statement, he's a good man, but a thief. What? How can you say he's a good man when you say he's a thief, right? You're outraged. A good man can't also be a thief. But are we looking at the first statement the way God looks at that statement? He's a good man, but proud? Do you have the similar knee-jerk reaction to that statement? Here in the book of Obadiah, one important lesson God is giving us is how God looks at pride and therefore how we should look at pride. The sin of pride is as bad as stealing, more likely worse. You can't be a good person and a proud person. They're at odds with one another. Pride ruins a person's character. Just like Satan First of all, in pride, what was at the center of the problems with the angels that God created was also at the center of the problems with human beings that God created in his own image. We become pridefully independent from God. We want to pretend that we can manage our lives without staying in connection with God at all. We forget God, which is the most silly, prideful statement you can make because we're made by God in his image, standing on the territory that he has created and continues to sustain The hearts beating in our chest are upheld by him. Our eyes keep blinking. The blood flows, the oxygen. Everything about us is utterly, at this moment, completely reliant on God. And yet we can think that we could just forget about him. That's prideful all by itself. We don't actively rely on God all day. We don't wake up each morning and say, I need you desperately today, Lord. Pride intensifies and gets worse. We start desiring to manage things our own way. Step aside, God, I've got this. And we begin to desire exclusive control of our lives. We want to be in charge. We want to take God's place. We want to make the decisions. So the basic root of pride is telling ourselves the lie that we can manage life without God. Think of it. How he sustains and supplies for us. The lie that we don't need him to refresh our spirits, our health, our emotional life. That we don't need God in our marriages, our close family, our friendship relationships. Recent example is scary, that reveals the pride of humans alive today, is when the worldwide pandemic hit. Why didn't most people in the world turn to God? It's rather scary. The book of Obadiah then has two halves. The, both halves are about pride. This is the main topic. The first half, verses 1 to 14, is about Edom's pride. Verse 1, concerning Edom. Verse 3, the pride of your heart has deceived you. But then starting in verse 15, the sudden shift to addressing all the nations. Verse 15, the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. It means pride is a problem for Edom as a sample. And pride is a problem for all nations, including all the persons in all the nations. Uh, if you're not paying attention, it means you. <laughs> it means you and me, right? Specifically what's true about ourselves. So let's ask this question. What are the things about which Edom was proud? 
What are the boasts of Edom that were classic and characteristic of pride, and is it possible that those, those boasts can be found in us? So the next three uh, boasts are listed on your handout, boast number one, two, and three. Number one, the first boast of Edom was that Edom was proud of her safety, which was because of her strength, you could say the word fortress. Military defenses, supplied by her location, simply her geographical situation. That piece of property, as I started to explain, was almost impregnable. Uh, no one could attack and overthrow Edom because their land was extraordinarily safe. The city of Petra was entered through that narrow winding pathway. The rock wall hallway on the left, rocks on the left and right, very long canyon, uh, one mile long. Uh, nowhere for that one mile of hallway is there a wider spot in the road for an army to sort of converge and gather itself. On average, it's only 15 feet wide, the whole length. So military experts say that with only a dozen soldiers, the city could be protected against the giant external advancing army. The dozen soldiers simply stand on top of the cliffs, shoot arrows, rocks, down against the advancing army, and it's hard to imagine a better setup in the world or a safer spot on earth than Edom, the capital city of Petra. Uh, now we better understand verse 3, why any residents of Edom might say in their hearts, who live in the clefts of the rock and lofty dwelling, who will bring me down? Ha! Right? The answer is no, and it's a rhetorical question. Nobody can bring me down. It's a prideful statement. We better understand verse 4, where God says to prideful Edom, though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down. Their high position was symbolic of their high view of themselves. God warned about pride back in Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Verse 5 tells us about the fall for proud Edom. God warned that he would bring to what we sometimes call the high and mighty uh, Edom, not just what an enemy army might bring to Edom, but God warned he would bring to Edom a total fall of destruction. Read verse 5. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed, would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? What's being said here in verse 5? Even if thieves somehow managed to sneak into Petra through that rock hallway and plunder it, taking whatever they want to take, all the valuables of the city, obviously some items of value would need to be left behind because they've got to carry it down this 15-foot-wide one-mile thing, before they even get out of the city, they still have the mountains and all the place to go to get back home. So no matter how strong, no matter how vigilant, no matter how systematic the enemy thieves were, they still couldn't carry everything away. Similarly, if grape pickers came, they couldn't pick every single grape. You ever try to get grapes home from the grocery store and make sure you got 100% of them? They always fall and they're rolling away. You find one under the cabinet later. Not so with God's judgment is the point. In God's judgment, Edom would be left desolate and empty. God would come at them 100%. Verse 6 says, How Esau, remember Esau equals Edom, how Esau or Edom has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. God will destroy them 100%. Now, is God being harsh? No. It's God's way of dealing with all nations and all kingdoms. Pride is a real issue. God allows nations to become strong. Then the nation thinks highly of itself, becomes prideful, the nation or kingdom thinks and says they're better than others. They start to speak pridefully to themselves and to others. They begin to think they can get along just fine without God and even oppose God, and then God brings the nation down. Isn't that not the history of the world? There have been 21 great civilizations in the history of the world. Each has passed away, and the next one rises up. At one time, Egypt was the strongest superpower in the world, but now Egypt is not even a world power. Babylonian Empire came, now there's no, none of it. There, it's no more. Greece, Roman Empire, same will be the case with whoever's in power today. We can listen to how they speak, who's they or us, or whatever countries are speaking. How do they speak about themselves? Does the nation boast that we're strong? Largest army, strongest navy, most weapons, finest soldier, better technology? You hear that anywhere? The first boast of Edom was her safety because of her own fortress, her own strength. Boast number two, my allies, my friends, my people. Edom boasted about her allies. Verse 7, God says this about Edom. All your allies have driven you to your border. 
Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. God is showing to Edom the mindset of Edom. Edom thinks that Edom is secure because it has good treaties, good alliances, good agreements, and good allies. But Edom has no understanding. What do they not understand? Ever since Adam, how human beings think and work. (laughs) Those agreements are only as good as the people on the other end. (laughs) Who do you think is over there, Edom, on the other end of your agreement? You don't have any understanding of human beings. They have deceived you. This verse says they prevailed against you. They fooled you, Edom. They're sharing meals with you, but they're trapping you in between bites. Edom's being played. Those friends would eventually prove untrue and would betray Edom to their enemies. Today, we have countries teaming up in what we call an age of diplomacy. Um, There's good in that. Wouldn't want to be against diplomacy. But what God is addressing here is the prideful error of replacing trust in God with trust in alliances and diplomacy with other nations. God's point in verse 7 is that others can deceive us, but God never will. The only thing that brings security to people and to nations is a humble, trusting, and obedient relationship to God on a personal level, on a national level. It's our human friends that bring us security. No, it's not. It's our relationship to the Almighty God, the close fatherly relationship to him through his son Jesus a humble, trusting, obedient relationship to him. It's wise for us to have friends, not against friendship. That's not the point of verse 7. It's wise for a nation to have allies. That's not the point of verse 7. The point is that we shouldn't trust in human friends and allies instead of trusting in God. How do we show that? Establishing God's ways of living, looking out for the poor, because God says, having justice in our lives, justice in our land, we walk before God in truth. Even the Lord Jesus Christ had disciples a team of people, right? He has people, my allies. (laughs) Danger presented itself to Jesus. He looks around, where are his allies? They all left him. Is he surprised? No, the Bible tells us he's not surprised. Where does it say that? John chapter 2, Jesus knew better than to place his ultimate trust in human followers. John 2.24, Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man For he himself knew what was in man. Jesus knew what was in man. Do you? It's significantly important for our trust relationships that we understand who's on the other end. Paul agrees that we are not to boast in our friends. Paul wrote it a different way in 2 Corinthians 10, 17. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's my friend. Boast number three, my own wisdom, my own cleverness, my own ability. Uh, There's this third factor of the pride of Edom. We boasted in their own wisdom. They believed no matter what came along, they could handle it. We got this. I figure they knew how to get around in this world. They're smarter than anyone else. Now there's a grain of truth in that. Uh, The Edomites were well known around the world at that time for their wisdom. If you look carefully at the book of Job, the man who was suffering and he had friends. Remember Job had friends that come by. Who were those friends? They represented the best wisdom around the world of that day. And who were they? Uh, Eliphaz. Guess where Eliphaz is from? Edom. Six times in the book of Job, the name Eliphaz the Temanite is mentioned, and Teman was in Edom. He's from Edom. That's not all. The other friend of Job, Bildad the Shuhite, he was listed five times in the book of Job, giving advice to Job. Shuhite was a mountain in the region of Edom. Now, you might not be impressed because the friends in the book of Job are known to be not giving the greatest advice, but that's the whole point. God is saying the best advice of the world is foolishness compared to God's wisdom. Elsewhere in the Bible, the phrase men of the east is stated. It includes the region of Edom. 1 Kings 4.30, Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the people of Egypt. Matthew 2.1, you might remember this from the Christmas story every year. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from where? From the east came to Jerusalem. Where are they coming from? Coming from Edom. Jeremiah 49.7, Concerning Edom, thus says the Lord of hosts, is wisdom no more in Teman? Has counsel perished from the prudent? Has their wisdom vanished? So here in Obadiah, verses 8 and 9, Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men of Edom, and understanding out of Mount Esau, and your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman? that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. 
God is confronting Edom to trust in their own psychological human wisdom. We got this. We understand how it all works. Oh, really, God says to them, prideful. He speaks about Edom in the Jeremiah passage in the Obadiah verse 8 here with the awareness that Edom was known as a place of human wisdom. God is saying it's going to be surprising and strange to you that there's no wisdom found in Edom any longer. God speaks of Edomites here as showing good discernment in some ways. But for all their wisdom, they're blinded by their own pride. They thought themselves to be wise. Romans 12.2, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. Paul wrote that this begins with seeing ourselves as we really are. By nature, human beings inflate the perception of ourselves and we're ever at the center of our own mind's eye, always measuring everything we see and hear against the standard of our own perspective, as if our own perspective is the triumphant one. And that's pride. We've got to move on to verses 10 to 14. Edom's pride led to what? The sin of pride led to them committing more sins. Now here, we see the structure of Obadiah as actually like a court case. God is the prosecuting attorney bringing Edom into his court. And so verses 1 to 9 so far have been the accusation. Edom is full of pride, guilty. Now, verses 10 through 14, the prosecution is expected to prove that. How do you prove in court that Edom is prideful? Here we get the specifics. Verse 10, because of violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, shall cut off forever. What did they do to Jacob? Well, hinted at it earlier, right? God accused Edomites of pride. The proof is conduct unbecoming of a brother. And since that doesn't seem to be a big no-no in our culture, it shows how how far our culture has fallen away from the things of God. God has instilled in his people a proper regard for brother, sister, for family relationships. We're supposed to have a high regard For husbands, wives, parents, children, those who are closest to us, we have special obligations and privileges too. The Bible speaks of this often. One example, 1 Timothy 5.8, it's a basic thing that even unbelievers do, and it's never absent in the life of a believer. 1 Timothy 5.8, if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he hath denied the faith, and it's worse than an unbeliever. 1 Timothy 5.8. So then, we see God prosecuting the case, we track seven steps of his proof in verses 11 to 14. Verse 11, God said to Edom, you stood aloof. That's distant. Could have helped, should have swooped in, could have encouraged, could have defended, didn't do it. Number two, verse 12a, God says to Edom, you do not gloat on the day of your brother, the day of his misfortune. You looked down on them, considered yourself wiser and stronger. You didn't... um, help, you were maybe curious about the details of the downfall of Jerusalem, but didn't help. The opposite is stated by God in Galatians 6. One, if anyone is caught in a transgression, brothers, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watching yourself lest you too be tempted. Rather than restoring, they stood aloof and gloated. The third um, proof is verse 12b. God said to Edom, do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Um, being happy that another person fails, that's pretty dark, right? Because it makes yourself appear better, that's pride. It's a dark attitude to focus on yourself and gain from another person's loss. The next proof point is 12C. Verse 12C, God said to Edom, do not boast in the day of distress. That's another outgrowth of pride, an attitude that considers oneself better. If we see ourselves on the same level of others, we will mourn with them and turn to God and humble thanksgiving that we have not uh, suffered the same fate that we've been spared. We'd recognize that because of our own sins, we deserve the same distress. We don't boast that I'm better. That would never happen to me because I'm better. That's pride speaking. Verse 13, the next proof. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Don't gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Previously, it was prideful attitudes of the heart, but here it shows up in actions. Edomites actually traveled to Jerusalem. They had no business there since they hadn't traveled there earlier in order to help when they're under attack. What are you doing here now, bro? <laughs> right? They show up at the scene of the crime. Why? In order to gloat in person. Now that's social interaction that's dark. It's done in person, gloating face to face on the scene. There's a progression downward here. Then verse 13, added to it, God proves by saying, do not loot his wealth on the day of time. They actually stole their property. 
See how you build the case? They're defenseless. They've just been attacked, and you come in and loot the city. They gained financially from the downfall of their brothers. In verse 14, God said to Edom, do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Don't hand over his survivors in the day of distress. They actually caught escaping Jews fleeing from Jerusalem and rounded them up and turned them over to the enemy, probably the Babylonians. Full-grown sin. It's reached the level of death. You're causing your relatives to die by turning them over to the enemy. We have a duty to build up others, brothers and sisters in Christ Ephesians 4.12, building up the body of Christ. So God has completed his case against the Edomites. What follows the guilty verdict in court? The sentencing. So all that's left is for God to issue the sentence on Edom, but an interesting thing happens in verse 15. Instead of the sentencing being aimed at Edom alone, the sentencing is aimed at all the nations. As if Edom were only a sample of the guilt and the coming verdict, the verdict and the sentencing on all the nations. So verse 15, the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations, but there's two outcomes of the day of the Lord, A and B there. A is vengeance against the nations in Edom, B is deliverance for Jerusalem. Those who were mistreated and distressed will be restored and helped by God. So remember how Joel described the day of the Lord as a locust plague? Remember how Amos described it as um, those thought that they were getting vindicated when the day of the Lord would come. So here Obadiah has his own characteristic way of presenting the day of the Lord. And it's our attention to this terrible destruction of Jerusalem and what was being done there um, as the day of the Lord would come. Those who contributed to that situation will have the situation reversed. Those who were oppressed will be restored and relieved. And those who were oppressing get what's coming to them. From the Lord. So it's a reversal in two directions. Verse 16 You've drunk on my holy mountain, so the nations will drink continually. Um, Verses 17 and 18 um, Deliverance for Jerusalem. Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape. It shall be holy. The house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. All right, running out of time. So let me go to the last verses, the uh, verses 19 to 21, the land to be regained by the Lord's uh, people. Um, All right. Let me go to, uh, I'll build on what I was just saying, the outcome of the day of the Lord. One is vengeance, the other is vindication. One is destruction, the other is restoration. It's just like when we think of the end of the world, there's heaven and hell, right? Those who think they're okay with God are deceiving themselves and filled with pride and they will be judged and sent away from the Lord. Uh, Those who are humble and know that they're wrong and need our sins to be cleansed by Christ are uh, welcomed in. So the same clash between the descendants of Edom and the descendants of Judah echoes into the New Testament, Herod and Jesus. Uh, King Herod the Great was the descendant of an Edomites. Idumeans sometimes is how the New Testament translates that. There's the same area. Uh, King Jesus, of course, from the tribe of Judah. So Matthew 2.16, we read, Herod, when he saw he had been tricked by the wise men, from where? From Edom, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. So King Herod the Great slaughtered the babies of Bethlehem in his desire to exterminate the Christ. The successor of Herod, the son, this is uh, King Herod Antipas, was no better. He beheaded John the Baptist. So you see the battle between um, Edomite descendants and Judahite descendants between Herodites and Christ or Christians. Here, you con- contrast it with Jesus who stood in true humility before the prideful King Herod and Edomite or Idumean. Uh, Jesus could have called forth legions of angels to fight for him and vindicate his cause instantly to remove King Herod from his throne, but instead he humbly stood. He wanted to bring his brothers and sisters with him into his kingdom So Jesus would need to die for his brothers. In this way, Jesus brought true brotherhood into the world as opposed to the lie of brotherhood of Edom. Only Christ and Christian men and women are enabled to act like true brothers and sisters to each other. Uh, We can go the way of Edom or we can go the way of Christ. We can go the way of Herod or go the way of Christians. The pathway of pride or the pathway of living for others and treating others in a brotherly and sisterly way. The Apostle Paul recalls the ancient rivalry between Edom and Judah. Paul defends his 
God's right of selecting people, Rebecca's two children, uh, one in the same father, one in the same mother, twins, right? God had determined that instead of the usual way, the younger will serve the older, this time it would be the opposite. The older would serve the younger, Romans 9, 12. Just as the prophet Malachi had said, Malachi 1, 2, and 3, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, so also Paul quoted that in Romans 9.13 when he's talking about God selecting the people who will be his and in his covenant. The outcome is what God determined would be the final outcome of the ancient rivalry between Edom and Judah. Um, let me tell you one story to close. So, um, what about these last words of Obadiah? The kingdom shall be the Lord's. That's kind of what the overarching truth is, right? That uh, pride will be judged. And those um, who are brought to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith have their sinful pride removed from them and we're in, in God's kingdom. So either way, it's God's kingdom. God has a heaven and a hell. So God's kingdom, the kingdom shall be the Lord's. That's how the book ends. So there's a, a, a pastor, Dudley Tinge, who was born in um, Pennsylvania in 1825 In 1854, he became the pastor of a church in Philadelphia. He preached against the evils of slavery, but he upset his church leaders and he was forced out of his church. Within four years, he was pastor of a different church and began to attract a lot of people because he continued to denounce slavery from his pulpit. While visiting uh, someone, he went into a barn and his clothing got caught in that old farm machinery. He was drawn into the machine and was terribly injured. There was no way to save his life. So he lay there dying, and he asked his father to tell all of his fellow pastors, stand up for Jesus. And a few days later, his close friend and fellow pastor, George Duffield, wrote a poem using Pastor Tinge's words. And these words are now in a well-known hymn. They're actually in our hymn book. They contain the final part of the prophecy of Obadiah, if you listen for it. The final part of Obadiah's prophecy, the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Listen for that. Stand up, stand up for Jesus. The strife will not be long. This day, the noise of battle. The next, the victor's song. To him that overcometh, a crown of life shall be. He with the king of glory shall reign eternally. So we're in that battle, uh, the battle in our own hearts, right, between Edom and Christ, the battle in our own hearts between Herod and Christ. Um, We are put to death, all those thoughts of of Edom. The judgment of God comes upon the pride of man and to humble ourselves before God and to recognize that God's kingdom is what it's all about. Let's pray. Thank you, our Father, for this uh, short book of Obadiah, which is vitally important.